Hello, welcome to It's a Scary Life. I am Melody, your host, and this is Ellen, my always phenomenal co-host. Hello. (laughs) I gotta say, I love my little intros. Oh, yeah? They make my day. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yay. (laughs) That makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah, let's dive in. Yeah. All right. I have been told (laughs) this is going to be a two-parter because somebody went all in on the research. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's a case I don't think, I personally don't think you can tell in one part. That's fair. I have been told that this person has a mother who is yes. concerning. Very. And that we are not, and that we are only going to get to one possible crime today. Yes. Okay. Because the early stuff is interesting and the later stuff is... Deeply fucked up? So, so fucked. Excellent. Uh <laughs> You're going to have an interesting time with um, what gets found in the house. Oh, no. Yeah. That's never good. You also, I think, told me a few weeks ago that this one was an American. Yes. That I might know. Not personally, but like just yeah, have heard of. You'll recognize the case. Okay. I would not be completely sure, but I did recognize the dolphin fucking case. <laughs> so anything can happen here, guys. Yeah. Who we got? In fairness, she did not fuck the dolphin. No, she only gave the dolphin hand jobs. Yes. Technicalities. Yes. Important technicalities. Like, deeply important. Very deeply important important technicalities. Yeah. We we ruined a perfectly good dolphin. (laughs) Look at him. He's got separation anxiety and depression. Yeah. He... Poor thing. Yeah. Just fell in love with a person. And then we dosed him with LSD. Actually, Peter didn't get it, no. Peter didn't? No. Oh. Just the ladies? Just Just a little LSD for the ladies? Nice. What the fuck? So, we'll see if this is more fucked up than that one. Yeah. It probably is. Okay, who we got? Okay. So, I'm sorry, Ellen. We're getting started, as always, by uh, giving you all a big old thank you. Ooh, yes. uh, For listening to our podcast. We love Um, you. And if you've been consistently listening, an especially bigger thank you to you as your loyalty to our amateur project here uh, has really been nice. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, knowing there are people out there who are regularly pressing the button to listen is so amazing. You're our favorites. Yeah. If you want to become our favorites, you can also go on over to our Patreon. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Go on over to our Patreon like us on Facebook and Instagram, and more importantly, just tell your friends about us. Yeah. Tell your friends, post about it online, whatever. Engagement. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. So, whomst. <laughs> whomst the fuck. Uh, just a little bit of it. Business to attend to ah, as well. Melody! Uh, I know I had promised double episodes on May 24th. Unfortunately, our sound equipment decided that that wasn't going to be possible and didn't record a good chunk of one of our episodes that we had recorded. So I released the one that did sound good and we will re-record after I feel Ellen has like forgotten that story enough that it's it's as good as fresh. Okay. (laughs) Parts of it are seared in my mind forever, but also no names. (laughs) So yeah, that is fair. Yeah. And speaking of re-recording, if you find yourself wanting to listen to our earlier episodes before the sound started getting better, 
but can't stand the quality. Uh, never fear. I'll be working on some of those again and re-recording them with Ellen in a little while. So Hell we yeah. can have recordings that people can actually hear nicely. Excellent. Yeah. I have mostly forgotten everything. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes. That is the goal. Yes. <laughs> My brain is a sieve. Sieve? Sieve? Something. <laughs> uh, I think it just depends on the context that you're saying it in. For sieve or sieve. Really? Yeah. Okay. Huh. Because I think it's uh, both a dialect thing and depends on what you're actually referencing. Ooh, that's true. It's also a word that I don't say a lot. Yeah. But like I read. Exactly. So yeah. One yeah. of those. Yeah. It's like people who say facade. For what? Facade instead of facade. Facade. Yeah. Fac- it's adorable, isn't it? Oh, I see how they get there. Yeah, no, right? Yeah. 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 It's spelt like facade. Is it though? No, I listen, if that's how you pronounce it, we love you and we support you in yeah. your life journey. But also, it does come from a French word. So it does, yes. But you would have to know that facade. it is. Yeah. But you see, have then to you know get to say that's it. French. But then you get to say it in a funny voice. Yes, so like, that's true. Bonus. <laughs> I mean, only if you feel like being dramatic like we do. Always be dramatic. Facade. all right ellen oh to dearie my dear ellen we are going to be walking down a terrifying road of religious extremism emotional incest and what will eventually become taxidermy gone wrong what the fuck is this is this i guess norman bates (laughs) I did guess Norman Bates. And then you were like, he's not a real person. I was like, I know. But like, is it the guy? (gasps) Was I right? (laughs) So into the life of an overbearing narcissistic mother and the horrific toll it took on her son that ended up terrifying and capturing the imaginations of the nation. Oh, no. Oh, no, I'm so sorry, guys. I think I was right. (laughs) The life and nature of the crimes committed that made the subject of our episode today infamous were so compelling and gruesome that they now define the American horror genre and have made it so his monikers of the Butcher of Plainfield and the Plainfield Ghoul could not overshadow his own name as they do with so many killers. What the fuck? Yeah. The fuck? Okay. So to Western Wisconsin we go today to hear the story of the man who inspired Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Silence of the Lambs, Edward (sighs) Gein. Oh my God, he was all of those guys? Yeah. I have seen none of the movies about these. So the, yeah, Silence of the Lambs is like the Buffalo Bill thing. No, yeah, obsessed. I get that that's, yeah. it's Hannibal Lecter. It's the, the Chianti and the Fava Vines. Yeah, uh, but it's not Hannibal who is Ed Gein No, he's it. just that's a why I'm... console. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's Leatherface. Oh, okay. I don't know how... That just sounds like a kink thing. I don't know. I've never seen any of the chainsaw. Um, I wish it was a kink thing. Leather masks are very normal. This is not a normal mask. Mm, no, is it made of people? god damn it i hate that um and of course norman bates from psycho 
again never seen it but like you know we all know wait wait you haven't seen psycho no melody it's me I was raised on PBS Kids, Jane Austen, and Shakespeare. I thought your parents had enough taste to show you Psycho. I was a wimp. (laughs) Melody, I was at 10. I could not get through March of the Penguins. My parents did not look at me. No one could get through March of the Penguins, no matter their age. That is a horrifically depressing movie. I was an emotionally fragile child, Melody. My parents did not look at me and go, you know what would be good for her? Horror. No, when that baby (laughs) penguin... Listen, we can't talk about this. We cannot. I I probably still to this day could not get through. When they started dropping from like the heat. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was done. Mm -hmm. I'd already seen some baby penguins die and starve. And then they were just. Oh, okay. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Somehow this dude is less disturbing than that. (laughs) Somehow. Yes. But, um. Yeah, I'm definitely having you come over and watch Psycho at some point because okay. it breaks my heart that you haven't seen it. I mean, I'm down. Yeah. It is truly a masterpiece. I know the twist. Um, I mean, you know the twist, but that's not the beautiful part of watching it at all. Okay. Yeah. That it just isn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm down. Uh, all right. So getting into the inspiration or, I mean, many things that have defined pop culture today. Hell yeah. So before diving into our story, I'd like to acknowledge my source for most of my research on Ed Gein. I read the book Deviant, The Shocking True Story of Ed Gein, The Real Psycho by Harold Schechter, which was fantastically researched. Schechter is a well-respected true crime writer who writes to put you right into the reality of the killer's life and crimes. The book is a wonderful read. He truly worked so hard to get all the information available on the case, which is never easy, anything prior to 1960. Uh, So give a deviant a read. And if you're interested in getting some more more, uh, in-depth information about Ed Gein and his family and crimes... So, in order to understand Ed Gein and the crimes he commits, we must understand the people he came from. Ed's father, George Gein, was born August 4th, 1873, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, on the border border of (laughs) Wisconsin and Minnesota. Sorry, I got you excited. I accidentally said Borden. Um, Lizzie Borden was correct, and I support her. (laughs) She was not correct, but, like, I still support her. Fair. George was orphaned at the age of three when a flash flood off the Mississippi River caught his family's wagon and his parents and older sister were all lost to the current. He was placed with his Scottish maternal grandparents on a nearby farm. When George finished elementary school, he apprenticed with a blacksmith. And bear in mind that this is the 1800s and having just an elementary school education is, you know, pretty big proficition of privilege at the time. Um, Yeah, and I mean, also, the education that they were getting, like, it was much more focused on repetition and memorization, so even an elementary school education, you would have, like, basic algebra, you know, decent reading. Yeah, you'd be be pretty okay. Could probably do better on a geography test than I could. (laughs) Like, almost certainly. Oh, fair, yeah, absolutely. Who? 
Um, who? Yeah. I've been embarrassed before. <laughs> <sighs> so George walked alongside the blacksmith over the anvil and forge until he hit his early 20s when he decided to move to the city lacrosse. George drifted from job to job working for a tannery, a carpenter, the power plant, and the railway, amongst other jobs. His inability to hold a job seemed to be connected with his inability to spend nearly all his wages at the bar after work. Uh. While drunk, George would get into a depressed mood, lamenting about the horrible hand life had dealt him, losing his family so young and then growing up in a rigid and, as he called it, loveless home. He considered himself worthless and an incompetent failure, and these feelings would only lead him to drinking more. Well, this sounds like fertile ground for a healthy child rearing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Doesn't he sound great? Uh, listen, he was dealt a rough hand and did not have the tools necessary to, you know, process that. No, not that. at all. And God knows life wasn't easy and there was no therapy. Yeah. So therapy is just barely being explored. And also definitely probably not in that area at that time oh, at no. an affordable price no, point. Not in Wisconsin. <laughs> West Wisconsin. There's there's no therapy at this time. People are a lot of cheese, no yeah. therapy. People are white knuckling it at this point. Just white knuckling it with a jar of pe- peanut butter and <laughs> what oh there's a uh some some comedian taylor tomlinson or something and she has this whole bit about how like boomer dads are just like you know her dad was just like listen if you ever feel sad just like eat a scoop of peanut butter you know like just like have some protein you'll get through and she has a whole bit about how like oh, a okay. lot of dads are just like white knuckling it through life with their like jar of gifs <laughs> Yeah, I don't, yeah. Anyways, nice. Yeah. Um, so in 1897, George Gein met Augusta Lerke. He was 24 and she was 19. Augusta was a broad, buxom woman of Hell German yeah. descent with a face with grand features that seemed to be made more coarse because of her look of rigidity and complete self assurance across it at any moment. Listen, I know she's going to cause problems. I know she's going to be a terrible mother, but like, hell yeah. You go, lady. Yeah. Just don't have children. It's fine. There's several aspects about her where I'm like, all right, yeah, respect. Right. It's just like, but also, you know. Yeah. Getting abortifacients out on the open. Well, in Wisconsin at that era might not have been the easiest. Yeah. So Augusta came from a large patriarchal family. She was taught an old world philosophy of Christianity by her father and lived to it strictly and expected others to live by those standards as well. Well, fuck. Looking down on anyone who didn't, which is everyone. It's literally everyone. This is going to go well. Yep. Fuck. Despite being a practicing Lutheran, Augustus religious beliefs bordered on the level of fanaticism of a Catholic in the Middle Ages and definitely crossed the same boundaries that the Puritans who came to the New World in order to religiously persecute others. Oh shit, is she like doing some tulip shit? Tulip? The Calvinist thing. 
it's the oh gosh i can't even remember all of them but it's basically like the calvinist principles i don't know anything about the calvinists they sucked okay yeah (laughs) (laughs) um that'd be something for me to look into so she was raised with the common misinterpretation of the quote, to spare the rod is to spoil the child, to justify any and all abuse, and held onto this belief until her dying day. Well, yep. Great. Not much is known about the courtship between George and Augusta or what really brought them together. Though what kept them together was certainly convenience and having nowhere else to turn. Augusta's dominating personality and strict religious views prevented her from getting suitors and George's lack of self-esteem and inability to face his substance abuse made being reliant on a dominating woman convenient. Yeah, match yeah. made in somewhere. Match. It's a match. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's going to light it all up. Oh, God. Was she involved in the temperance movement at all? Because I can see that. Like, him stumbling Um, out of a bar one night. That would make a lot of sense. And her, like, declaiming and tossing pamphlets and, like, raising a pickaxe over her head. The thing is, is that she doesn't join other people in things. Mm. So, like, as much as she would have those strong opinions and maybe do it for her own. Yeah, she wouldn't be outside handing out pamphlets. She's better than everyone because she already adheres to this code. Mm. She, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she already has the code. (sighs) I don't like her. (laughs) I know I'm not supposed to, but, like, goddamn. And, I mean... to put you to put someone in the mindset of someone who's like this it's there's this belief that like well it's just so obvious that this is how it's supposed to be like you know they read the bible or whatever thing they're using to justify the way they feel and they go well it's just so obvious and you know it really is them just reading into it what they want to see oh yeah for sure like, I get why she was like that, but it's just frustrating. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Augusta did not know George's alcohol issues until they were married. Oh. It was an easy habit to hide from someone you do not live with and see on specific already agreed upon dates. This is why it's important to live with whoever you're planning on marrying first. Yes. Like, fuck all that living in sin shit. Like, do it. Yes, absolutely. Figure out their habits. See if you guys can synchronize with one another. If you can find good compromise with one another. Because that's what's going to make you last. Mm-hmm. Anyhow. Less um, marriage advice. <laughs> Back to Augusta. <laughs> Augusta was infuriated at the fact that he would drink and, and do so in such a way that both depleted their money and made their household sinful. But of course, Augusta could never leave George as divorce was a sin. So instead, she prayed for her husband's death while taking the role of head of household. That's healthy. Yeah. That's totally healthy. Cool. Good good on you. Just take on all of the things that he's just not going to do. So her disappointment in choice of husband only added to Augusta's rigid and intolerant nature. Augusta would openly talk about George's shortcomings and her hatred of him. She criticized his lack of ambition that despite the fact that he was broad and muscular, he was a very weak man. 
and he seemed afraid of hard work and his inability to hold a job or be useful around the home due to his drinking. George responded to this treatment by sinking into himself and his feelings of inadequacy and life being completely unfair to him. What what a great couple. See, like, my God. Right? My God. Divorce is a sin, Alan. She can't she can't just leave him. What what about what about a little bit of arsenic with dinner? <laughs> or a little bit of turpentine in his, you know, whatever his drink of choice Murder is. Murder is a cardinal sin. Well, but here's the thing. If if you put it in his drink and he drinks it and you tell him this drink will kill you. It's still murder. I mean, only in a very <laughs> technical legalistic sense of the word. <laughs> Not really. That would that would still be be murder in a religious sense because you deliberately killed a person. Well, what if you said, hey, don't drink that. It'll kill you. And then he drank it and it killed him. Because you're still purposely killing the person. I mean, technically. Not technically. <laughs> you are still intentionally killing them. <laughs> I guess. Just because you're pretending to do reverse psychology doesn't make it less of intentional murder that just makes it that actually makes it worse it's more plotting you're just adding to the charge like i guess (laughs) yeah but no murder is still a cardinal sin i guess yeah yeah sin Eh. so when augusta wasn't barking orders at him or berating him the house was filled with a thick torturous silence on rare occasions after coming home from the bar george would lose his temper during augusta's regular verbal abuse he and he would fight back and hit her repeatedly until augusta slumped to the floor and it was into this home augusta decided that they would bring a child cool yeah this is this is gonna end well so augusta's strong religious beliefs naturally affected her views on sex. She saw the act as a duty to God strictly for the sake of procreation. So, of course, sex at a wedlock, in her view, was an abomination and an unforgivable act. Oh, of course. Any child who was the result of being born out of wedlock would carry their parents' sins. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a baby. Yeah. So in extension to these beliefs, Augusta felt that most modern women were harlots and whores. She felt more, uh, many were too forward for smiling at men. And as she felt brazenly walking down the streets for attention. Amazing. All modern women know how to do is eat hot chip and lie. Excellent. Augusta saw the world as a dark and sinful place that encouraged people to live to Babylonian excess. See, that's unnecessary. Especially in the cities and the city of La Crosse where she lived. Still, in this world of horrors and sin and temptation to give into the devil at every turn, Augusta felt the desire to become a mother and have a baby, so she let George into her bed. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this was an intentional thing. Oh, yeah. This wasn't just a no. Oh, we're married. Oh. No, it's all a sin. If it's a sin, she doesn't do it. So uh. if it's not for procreation, she's not going to have sex. She's not even sleeping in the same bed as the man. 
<laughs> What's the point if you're not going to have sex? Warm? I don't know. Do you want the warmth of someone who reeks of whiskey? Oh, no, not at all. No. <laughs> I'm, ju- I'm just trying to come up with some other plausible reason. But like, no, listen, if separate <laughs> beds work for you, they work for you. Yeah. So the first porn to the doxic marriage of George and Augusta Gein was Henry George, born on January 17th, 1902. Augusta felt no attachment to this child. She blamed the baby's gender for her lack of feelings for him, which created a longing for another child for her that increased over time. Oh, no, 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 no. After Henry is born, though, George feels he needs to get his life together and do something that would guarantee him a job. So he decides to work for himself. Two of Augusta's brothers were merchants with general stores that had increasing customer growth. La Crosse was certainly a large enough city to handle another, and thus George opened up his own meat and grocery shop at 914 Caledonia Street. He was not a great businessman, however, and things started to fall apart pretty quickly. Damn it. Yeah. Man. Yeah. (laughs) I really thought maybe. Mm -hmm. Maybe. So George didn't do the paperwork or keep track of things, and his drinking was still a pretty big problem. Ah! Augusta, being the dominating woman that she is, took over for him in the business affairs. It was at this point Augusta decided to once again take it for the team and invite George back into her bed and try for the girl that she truly wants. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Sure. Yeah. Sure. This isn't going to end badly. Okay. So on August 27th, 1906, Augusta gave birth to her second child, a boy named Edward Theodore. Augusta felt a stinging betrayal at having another boy, but felt that it was God's will. So she decided that she would make sure that this boy was not like the rest of the sinful world. Oh, no, 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 no. She vowed to be sure that this boy would not grow up to be like those lustful, vulgar men who used women's bodies. No, this one would be righteous by her definition. Unfortunately, though, she would only succeed in raising a man who was, in fact, very different from all the others. A murderer. Just a (laughs) a straight up murderer with some mommy issues. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, he he builds to the murder in grosser ways. That's not helping his case, Melody. No, it's not. Oh. What the fuck? So, while living in the cross, the Gein family would spend their time either in the market or at home together. Augusta had taken full control of the shop. In official paperwork for the lacrosse directories, Augusta's power and control over everything became publicly clear. Between 1909 and 1911, directories, George went from being listed as the owner to clerk, with Augusta taking his place in 1911. Oof. Which, like, respect. Honestly, like, That's like the one of those best things possible like, decision in this situation, but also, like, yeah, oof, in that time says some things it says an enormous amount Mm -hmm. from little eddie's perspective his mother was everything she ran the shop almost by herself serving customers handling the register and keeping the books meanwhile he had watched his father 
slumping around, stalking the shelves at the shop, and then get drunk and become very angry at home. At home, Augusta would do the housework and teach Henry and Ed their lessons, which consisted of her reciting her favorite Bible verses and preaching about the sins of the world and how she, they should never get mixed up with the whores and harlots right outside their door. Oh, great. Oh, this is this is very, so very healthy. healthy. So just the best mother. Who? So she so 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 th- she's not only like doing all the whores and harlots talk, but she is isolating them as much as yes. she can. Absolutely. As much as she can. She wants total control of them. Oh, dear. So if there was a single thing wrong with his mother, Ed could not find it and will fail to find it for the rest of his life. One reason he felt trouble seeing her flaws was rooted in a memory in their house in La Crosse. In Ed's earliest memory of his mother, he had lost balance near the top of the stairs and started to fall down. But before he could really fall into what could possibly kill him at that age... Oh, easily, with those staircases? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, he felt a hand on his right arm and was brought right back up to the top of the stairs. The hand was, of course, his mother's hand, and she yelled at him furious while she held him by the arm. Little Eddie concluded from his mother's fury at his fault meant that he had done something wrong, and it had been his fault. He felt miserable. He could fail his infallible, godlike mother. So this is why childproofing your house is very important, <laughs> um, because you don't want your child's core memories to be that. Like, are you going to need to catch them before they tumble down the stairs? Oh, probably. Almost certainly. A few times. Yeah. Um, but having baby gates up and being very vigilant about when they're open and closed uh, will really help with that. Yeah. Childproof your houses. Fuck. Yeah. I feel like even if they had childproofing, Augusta Gein would have not done Oh, that. no. Listen, in this case, it wasn't <laughs> going to do much. But like at the very least, slightly different core memory. Absolutely. You know. Um, but I mean, this is truly how she wants him to see her, which is scary messed up so many levels scary like it's natural for you to want to feel to for for you to want your kids to see you in a in a positive light as an authority figure but this is a bridge too far several bridges in fact (laughs) yeah it's it's going into some depths at this point it's not even bridges you're taking staircases just down yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, but there was one other memory of his early life with his mother that stood out for Ed to share and seemed to have a large impact on who he becomes in later life. At the market, there was a wooden outbuilding that Ed was not allowed to go into. In a little act of mischief, as kids are wont to do when curious, he snuck over to the outbuilding when his parents weren't around to see what was inside. As little Eddie peeked into the back door of the building that had been opened just a crack he saw a slaughtered hog hanging upside down by a chain his father was holding it still as his mother slipped a long knife down the body opened it up and reached inside and began taking duck the guts out allowing them to fall into the a metal tub at their feet both of his parents were wearing long aprons that were covered in blood he must have made a noise because his mother spun around with urgency 
This image of his mother in a blood spattered apron next to the body of a hog she had been butchering will remain a clear image in his mind. That's kind of badass. Like that. <laughs> listen, that I get that this is going to become very messed up very quickly. Oh, yeah. But I mean, just the bit. Ba- I mean, this is just basic butchering. Like out of the context of the rest of this story. Yeah, that that's a pretty good for you moment. Yeah. Y- like, you butchered honestly, an animal. Yeah. I can see where like a very young child is going to be like, oh, God. Especially yeah. if they haven't, if you haven't, like, told, like, talk them through what you're doing. But ultimately, like, yeah, of course. You got to get bacon from somewhere. Yeah. If you're the grocery store, you know. This is, yeah. Where it's from. This is the market. This is where it get butch- gets butchered. For sure. Yeah. yeah. So, at some point, Augusta became tired of living in the city. She had saved and worked hard for years, and in 1913... She got to have her dream of leaving. She had decided that the family would become farmers and found a small dairy farm in Camp Douglas, 40 miles east of La Crosse. However, something about this farm did not satisfy Augusta, and after less than a year, she moved the family further out from the city. Augusta moved them to a 195-acre farm in Plainfield, Wisconsin, deeded in her name. Okay, so we're isolating the children even more. Oh, yeah. Who? This is what cultists do. I just want to point that out. And this is not an easy life she has brought them to. Plainfield, Wisconsin was established in 1849 and unoriginally named after Plainfield, Vermont. It's a one-road village of roughly 1.6 square miles, sitting almost perfectly in the middle of Wisconsin. It is surrounded by mostly forests, farmland, and other small villages like it, especially in the early 20th century when we're discussing these people. Mm -hmm. The population has generally been around 800 people nowadays, and in the early 20th century ranged from 650 to 700 people. Plainfield has always been a poor farming community where people struggle to get their crops to grow and grow good enough to sell. The land is flat and featureless, and the soil is desolate and lacking nutrients. Still, the community of Plainfield has always been a tight-knit and neighborly. In the early 1900s, when our story is set, People borrowed items from one another. Peel potlucks were the event of the season, and everyone in town went to see the elementary school Christmas pageant. Aww. Plainfield was simply a poor provincial town that gets the occasional natural disaster, murder, or lynch mob. Oh, no. I mean, it, it's, yeah. in, it's in Wisconsin. That's fair. <laughs> so the Gein house in Plainfield was a nice home especially for the poor and generally impoverished area. The house featured two stories with a classic L-shaped home with a parlor, kitchen, and two bedrooms downstairs and five bedrooms upstairs. The outbuildings included a summer kitchen that could be accessed through the regular kitchen, a barn, chicken coop, and an equipment shed. So That's actually a pretty sweet setup. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't mind that. It's a nice little setup for 195 acres. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I mean, if 
you know, the family was a little bit more functional. Yeah. The house, however, had no electricity and no running water and would remain that way until it is later demolished. Well, fuck. Yeah. Augusta decorated their parlor with her best furniture. A cherry bureau with simple leaf designs, rocking chair with elaborately carved arm supports, pine bookcase with other bound books, and several photos of family around the room, including portraits and Augusta's favorite reproduction of a painting of Jesus Christ gazing at an angel. Okay. <laughs> but sure. Yeah. I'm sure it was tasteful. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the crucifixion or anything. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> And this is the most important feature of all. The house sat six miles outside of town. Oh, no. Just, no, no, no. Yeah, just far enough in a time, this time of wagon travel to make it so a monthly trip into town supplies was all that was practical. Yeah. The fuck? Total isolation. Okay. I thought they were going to be living in town because everybody was simple and godly or whatever. But no, this is worse. No. Damn it. Augusta's need for power and control did not stop in how she kept her home as well. Things were always to be kept, as she put it, neat as a pin. Augusta was fiercely proud of keeping this perfectly kept home. She may never be rich or live in a mansion, but she kept a clean and lovely home. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Mm-hmm. Mm. If only she understood patience is a virtue. Yeah, well, that's one of those inconvenient things. Right? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Listen, it's the Bible. We're going to pick and choose here. Exactly. It took Augusta no time at all to conclude that the people of Plainfield were all a simple and unworthy lot. In her views, a town full of God-fearing neighborly, hard-working townsfolk were all sordid and vile. Since Plainfield had a Methodist, Catholic, and Baptist church, but no Lutheran church, she felt there was no reason to socialize with anyone in town. She carried herself with a pious attitude through town and would speak of feeling people's resentment of her. As much as Augusta wanted to fully isolate her sons as she had brought them up with her own warped version of a religious upbringing, she was legally required to send them to school. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah, I mean, I know it didn't help. Yeah, it became a law in like the 1850s, which, good. Yeah. 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 So, Eddie had attended Roche Acree in grade school starting at eight years old with about a dozen other students until it had merged with another school in the area, the White School. It was from the White School that Eddie graduated from the eighth grade at age 16. In school, he was generally an average student with no friends. The other children found little Eddie odd as he sat with a grin that made them uneasy, and it remained at his face at inappropriate times. He also had a habit of laughing at unsuitable times, as if laughing at a little private joke to himself. Some of the girls would catch Eddie staring at them with such an intensity that even at such a young age, they felt uncomfortable and violated by his gaze. Though, in contrast, if he heard the other boys whispering about sex, he would run away totally scandalized. Oh, that Christian <laughs> fundy grip. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Eddie was more effeminate than the other boys as well, with a softer voice and manner of behavior. He was also highly sensitive and cried easily. 
Once a boy made a comment about a fleshy growth Eddie had on his left eyelid, saying he had a saggy baggy eye, and Eddie's demeanor switched from lighthearted and grinning to sobbing like a baby. Ooh, so emotional regulation. Not a thing. Oh, dear. At all. Oh, dear. And he really does not learn it. Fuck. Okay. Eddie could sense his classmates' dislike of his qualities, and this left him feeling horribly alone. He felt unable to relate to the children his own age. He would try to imitate their behavior of kids around him to fit in, but it wouldn't work, as it never does for anyone. And also, like, they'd already kind of clocked that he was odd. So, yeah. Yeah. They figured it out already. Mm-hmm. On the rare occasion Eddie did start to get along with another boy at school, he would go home and excitedly tell his mother about his new friend. Buddy, no! And Augusta, yeah, immediately would start giving off objections to the friendship. The boy's family had a reputation. There were rumors about the father, and the mother was of questionable virtue. She would get angry at Eddie for not seeing that they weren't a good person to socialize with and berate him for being so stupid, saying a phrase that hung over his head his entire life. Only a mother could love you. What? Oh, so uh, fucked to say to your own child. So terrible. Ah. Uh, what the fuck? The next day, Eddie would return to school, unable to even look at the other child. This social isolation helped to confirm Augustus' teachings to Eddie about the world being a rotten and awful place, and he was only safe in the arms of his mother. Though not literally, because she was not um, loving in that way. She did not embrace her children. Oh my god. Yeah. You can't, you can't cut a child off from the world. <laughs> First of all, you just full stop. Yeah. But like, you also can't cut a child off from the world and then not be just like a physically affectionate person. Yeah. Like, he, God, yeah. God, no wonder. No wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the combination of things that feed into this man's delusions is just, I don't under, I don't see how he could have turned out better. I don't, especially because of the time period. Yeah. That's kind of the thing. <laughs> so at home, things weren't any easier for Eddie. The barren land in Plainfield made it difficult enough to get anything to eat on the table and, or anything to sell for a little bit of an income. While Eddie was small, his father was useless for the backbreaking work on the farm, and he would spend his time loafing and drinking, often beating Henry and Eddie while in a drunken rage. Once Henry and Eddie had grown into men, though, they were too big for George to beat them, and so he would still just rant and rave to abuse his family. Augusta was left doing all the work on the farm and housework until the boys had grown into men in their own right and could take on the monthly supply runs and labor over the soil. And as they grew into manhood, Augusta's constant barrage of judgment of the modern women who surrounded the boys in town would increase. Ma'am. Ma'am. What the fuck? From when they were children, when the rain would fall, she would take them into the parlor and preach to them about the looseness of modern women, condemning their makeup and short skirts that she saw were so popular in magazines. She would recite psalms and verse, particularly from the Book of Revelations and the passages, passages on the Whore of Babylon. Oh, great. This is great. This is, this is wholesome family education. Yeah. 
great. Yeah. Mm. She would tear apart these women and then have her son swear that they would never soil themselves with a woman. Right? Uh, so she didn't want grandchildren, I guess. I mean, it makes sense. She's Not without an appropriate courtship and, you know, sex for only procreation. Yeah, sure. <laughs> mm. And since none of the girls in Plainfield are of good virtue. Worthy of her darling boys. Yeah. Yeah. Not darling boys. That's true. They are not her darlings at all. What the fuck? She's a whole other thing. Yeah. Once in a while when Henry got older, he would push back or ask questions about Augustus' audiology. He would, of course, get shocked down. Henry resigned himself to a life of bachelorhood after his mother had berated him for speaking to some girls in his teenage years. So he Work lived. Dude. Yeah. So he simply lived with his mother and brother, worked and worked on the farm for the rest of his life, which unfortunately wasn't going to be quite that long. <gasps> no. Melody, no. Yeah. Oh. Is he the unconfirmed? Maybe. Melody. <laughs> that poor kid. Man, yeah. boy, guy. Right. The first to die in the Gein household was George Gein. Oh, cool. All right. That's fine. The many years of hard drinking and a tumultuous marriage had taken a terrible toll on George's health. And in his early 60s, his body was just broken. By 1937, George was invalid and completely reliant on a family who despised him for decades of abuse. On April 4th, 1940, George Gein's hapless, cheerless life finally came to an end. He was given a respectful obituary in the local paper and had a surface at the local funeral home with a reverend of the Plainfield Methodist Church officiating. The loss of George Gein was not one of sorrow for the family, though. Augusta felt obvious relief, and for the boys, George was just a horrible part of their lives that got made worse when he had become reliant on them. The family continued to tirelessly work the land and try to yield anything from their soil. Augusta still kept the house neat as a pin, while the house on the outside looked increasingly weather-torn and dilapidated, as she hadn't been able to make any money to do upkeep. Ed Gein spent time outside of Plainfield once in his life after moving there. It was 1942, and United States involvement in World War II had just begun. Henry was too old to be drafted into the military service. At the age of 36, Ed was still within range. He traveled to the big city of Milwaukee along Lake Michigan. But during his physical exam, it was found that the growth on his eyelids slightly impaired his vision, and he was deemed unfit for service. Aw, oh, damn. Making his chances of learning to live without his mother's constant eye basically stero at this stage in his life. Well, fuck. Yeah. One little glimmer of hope being like, oh, military service. You can like, learn something different. Rough. Right. I mean, he could at least learn a different way of life that way. Yeah. See a bit of the world. Mm -hmm. Have other influences. Like, right. you know, question. Yeah. Back when the military was actually see the world. Experience something different. I mean, it, it still can be. It's just also. Yeah. It's way more fucked. Yeah. I mean, it was always kind of fucked. I mean, it was always it's always been killing people in the end. But. 
Yeah. It's a different mission. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Very different mission. Yeah. <laughs> World War II was a noble mission. Yeah. If done um, for ignoble reasons. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. Not just because you wanted to kill Nazis, but because you wanted to kill Nazis to save people. Yeah. <laughs> well, also because, you know, oh, well, they attacked us, you know. And Ugh. Yeah, I hate that reason, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah no. Moving on. Yeah. Yep. Ed did start to get some connection outside the home after his father died. His trips into town for supplies left a good impression on the townsfolk of Ed. Oh, thank God. Yeah. He was polite to people and definitely didn't have the holier-than-thou attitude his mother carried with her. They still thought he was a little odd and had an unsettling grim, but overall a harmless and decent man. Simply put, to the townsfolk of Plainfield, Ed Gein was simply a neighbor. People would hire him for occasional work. Ed would repair fences, patch roofs, paint houses, hang windows, and babysit. Ed, as an adult, still felt difficulty connecting to his peers, but got along great with children. The children are always happy to see Ed, and he was happy to spend time with them. Which tracks. Tracks. Okay. People who go through a lot of abuse as children tend to connect very easily with children. Yeah. It's because there's a part of you that is still, still a child. Still a child. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Which, it's so upsetting. Yeah. But at least it got him out of the house. Right. Yeah. I mean, I know it didn't ultimately change anything, but, you know. Yeah. <sighs> Henry started finding more steady work outside the family farm in the 1940s. This independence allowed him to save some money, and he wanted to use his money to move out of the family home. Henry and Ed had always been close. They were two brothers who were stuck together through their father's abuse, their mother's abuse, and were each other's friends growing up, doing chores and going fishing and hunting together on the property. The only point of contention in their relationship was how close Ed was with their mother. Uh. Henry always questioned their mother's preachings and felt weary about how attached she was with Ed and vice versa. Ed could sense Henry's weariness with their relationship and was shocked that Henry would even have an implied criticism of his mother, who he saw as a perfect being. This rift between them is believed to be what had led to the death of Henry Keene. God damn it. I was really hoping one of them would get out. Right? Like, <sighs> so you would ho- you hope someone comes out normal in this situation. Yeah. Like the Plath family where actually all of them seem like they're coming out pretty normal, which is good, but mm-hmm. good for them. The music did something. They did one thing right as parents and taught their kids music because it really helped them with a lot of emotional regulation that they would not have without that. Mm-hmm. And also they were like traveling around a bit to shows and so even no matter how sheltered you try and keep your kids on like music tours yeah they still saw a little bit of the world yeah even if it's just other christian churches it's churches that may not perfectly align with your worldview yeah yes which is all churches for the plus yeah but getting back to a different fucked up family goddamn (laughs) what happened to poor old henry There are not a lot of concrete details about what happened on Tuesday, May 16th, 1944. 
The only unquestionable fact is that this is the day of Henry Keene's untimely death at 43. There was a runaway fire in some marshland near the Gein home. Newspapers at the time reported that Ed had gotten Henry to help him and to light the fire. Other sources say that the fire was controlled burn that had gotten out of hand, and others say that the fire was started completely by accident. Years later, Ed himself stated that Henry had lit the fire, coaxing Ed to come with him. You need more than two people to do a good controlled burn. Yeah. Like, what <laughs> the fuck? Um, I don't know much about conservation, but I know that much. Yeah. So all we truly know is there was a fire and the Gein brothers set out to put it out before it became a disaster. Once the fire was out, Ed had made his way into town and told the people he couldn't find his brother. As he told it, he and Henry were extinguishing the fire when they had gotten separated. There was a big gust of wind that made the fire get out of control and he could only focus on putting that out. People from the town formed a search party, including the deputy sheriff, to find Henry out in the marsh. This search party proved to be needless, though, as Ed was able to bring them directly to where Henry's body was face down on the scorched land. Ah, that's uh, convenient. Right? Yeah. Mm, So Mm, convenient. Buddy. I mean, it's his first murder. (laughs) You gotta cut him some slack. You shouldn't. You should arrest him, but you Mm -hmm. know. So the ground underneath Henry's body had been obviously burned, but Henry himself showed no signs of burns from the fire. His clothes were covered in soot, but had no scorch marks, nor did his skin have any burns. Some of the men noticed Henry had some odd bruises on his head. You don't say. Yeah. And the people in the search party didn't just see these things as odd, But the fact that Ed had said he couldn't find his brother then led them straight to Henry's body. When someone commented on that fact, Ed simply stated, funny how that works. Buddy. No. Oh, that is that. No, 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 no. Melody, what the fuck? Nevertheless, everyone there and the DA, county coroner and local doctor who were called onto the scene once Henry's body was found felt there was no more reason to look into the the death. It seemed to be another awful accident as a result of fighting a fire. He simply succumbed to the heat and smoke and hit his head on a rock. Henry's official cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. No one thought that Odd Ed Gein had anything to do with his brother's death until years later, when the true nature of Ed is revealed to the world. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Delightful. What the fuck? So after Hevner's death, life began to carry on in the Gein household with Augusta and Ed alone together, possibly their ultimate dream. But this twisted tale wouldn't last long as Augusta Gein soon started to feel faint and sickly. Hell yeah. This came as a shock to Ed who viewed his mother as a being of strength and willpower, even a miracle in human form. Ed drove his mother to Wild Rose Hospital to be seen by a doctor. By the time they had arrived, Augusta had become so weak she needed a wheelchair to get into the exam room. After sitting and waiting in the hallway, surely agonizing over what might be going on with his mother, Ed was approached by her doctor who told him that his mother had suffered a stroke. 
While Augusta recovered in the hospital, Ed would visit her and sit by her bedside every day as long as he was allowed. I mean, in any other situation. Yeah. Good kid. Right? In this one. mm. Leave her. Yep. (laughs) Just leave her. This is your chance. Run. Yep. Um, Yeah. Poor Eddie. So... Once she was discharged from the hospital, Ed carried his mother himself from the truck into the house and laid her down into her bed. He was excited at the role reversal between himself and his mother. She spent his entire life taking care of him, and though it pained Ed to see his tower of a mother looking so frail, he was thrilled to prove his worth to her. Ed would wait on his mother's every need. Augusta would sit without complaint and would just simply tell her son to her best ability what she needed done. Ed would sit by her bedside in the evenings and read to her. She would often request Psalm 6. Which one is that one? I don't know my Psalms. Uh, I will send it to you later or okay, something. Cool. I didn't like list the whole thing in here. Cause yeah, fair. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long, it, it, so, Psalms are a bit long. Yeah. So by mid-1945, Augusta was starting to feel better and up for the world again. She began to walk again, insisting on having no help getting back on her feet from Ed. Ed felt ecstatic that his mother was getting better and looking healthy again. Even through his disappointment of her lack of acknowledgement of all the work he had done for her while she was recovering. Yeah, what the fuck? Right? Ed was looking forward to many more years of him and his mother on the farm when the unthinkable happened. In December of 1945, Augusta suffered a second stroke. Fuck. Ed rushed her to the hospital for treatment, but on December 29th, 1945, Augusta Gein died at the age of 67. Her obituary was a short three sentences. Its brevity and lack of personal touch a testament to the lack of community Augusta bred for herself. A few of Augusta's siblings attended her funeral, but other than that, only Ed was in attendance. Augusta Gein died with only one person who truly cared for her. Ed struggled to control his grief for his mother's loss. He wept through her funeral, crushed to lose his only friend in the world. Edgeen was officially and totally alone. And as the world progressed to what felt like a bright future, with the end of the war and a new year coming, Edgeen was about to descend into a darkness that he will never find his way out of, leading him to crimes that shocked the world and inspired many to create characters based on him. And that is where we will pick up in part two. Well, damn. Oh, my God. This is, yeah. is going to be rough. We, we have scratched the surface. We have gotten into the early life and what has created the monster. Yeah. And now we get to learn all the ways that he unravels. Um, Who, buddy? Who, buddy? Yeah. He, he is a great example of to understand the crimes. You need to understand the upbringing yeah because if you just look at his crimes you're like how does someone get to this point and then it's like oh well you put it in a context of how he was raised yeah extreme isolation purposely taken away from civilization especially in this time period 
Oh, yeah. And then just kind of told that the rest of the world is cruel and evil. And yeah. Yeah. That'd do it. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't feel like he was being told the rest of the world was cruel. I just think it was being reinforced by the fact that his mother was constantly angry and his father was constantly drunk and angry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things that can get reinforced, you know, unintentionally. Uh-huh. That's why, uh, careful what you say. Children will listen. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good uh, moment to work into the woods in there. Hell yeah. Augusta Gein is a really great example of how you do not raise a child. Um, and Into the Woods has a lot of great advice on raising children. It really does. Yeah. This is a Sondheim positive podcast. Always. Always. I fucking love Sondheim. Sondheim is incredible. May his memory be a blessing. May his memory be a beautiful blessing. That one got me. That <laughs> one. Yeah. Like... He was supposed to be immortal. Yeah, we lost a master. But and any any thoughts you have on Ed? From the vague shit that I know about what he did, who buddy, it all makes sense. Yeah. That is it. It's an upbringing where you're like, all right, I I get where you put like, to like oof. got from point A to point B, oof. dude. Especially with, like, the two kind of, like, core memories. Like, mm, yeah, mm-hmm. that'd do it. That yeah. would do it. They are pretty rough. Yeah. Um, you know, like, it's uh, it's funny you say we're inside out. Just getting that picture of the core memories in the brain. Yeah. I just, I imagine all of Ed's core memories being purple from fear. Just. Oh. I You're think right, he, but oh. he, he was terrified as a child. He was traumatized as a child. This is a very strong case for this person had complex PTSD and then was totally isolated and fucked up shit ensued. Yeah. And this is why I go to therapy. Yeah. Because go to therapy, everybody. Childhood trauma is a thing. And I have complex PTSD. Melody. And you know, I don't want to do fucked up shit. Or be mean. Or even just have angry outbursts. Went to therapy. Yeah. And you can too. Went to therapy. Currently have a therapy appointment booked. Oh, mazel. For the future. To make sure I'm on the right tracks. You know, we do the thing. Mm Mm-hmm. We take care of ourselves. So we, you know, don't do the horrific things we're going to say in part two. Goddamn. All right. Join us next time for some... Creepy ass shit. <laughs> for some terrifying things. Some what photos that are going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm going to have to see those photos, aren't I? You don't have to if you don't want to. Oh, hell yeah. I will never subject you to crime scene or evidence photos you don't want to see. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. But go get therapy, especially if you related to any of Ed Gein's childhood. Literally any of it. Just any Just any layer of that yeah Yeah. talk to somebody please uh it's good for you trust me (laughs) um and we will catch you guys next time yeah for part two Bye. bye